This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I am delighted to be joined today by my friend, Senator Dr. Bill Cassidy. I have been deeply fortunate to get to know Senator Cassidy through my work at African Mission Healthcare, where I have seen firsthand Senator Cassidy's complete devotion to bringing healthcare to the most vulnerable. This passion started long ago, and Senator Cassidy is a physician who specializes in the treatment of the liver and is married to a surgeon, Dr. Laura Cassidy, who volunteered as a missionary surgeon at some of the same hospitals that African Mission Healthcare supports today in Africa. In 1998, Senator Cassidy founded the Greater Baton Rouge Community Clinic to provide uninsured residents of the Greater Baton Rouge area with access to free care, including dental, medical, mental health, and vision care. Senator Cassidy also set up health centers in schools which vaccinated children in Baton Rouge against hepatitis B and the flu. In the mid-2000s, Senator Cassidy channeled his commitment to public service towards government. He was elected to the United States Congress in 2009 and to the United States Senate from Louisiana in 2014, where he is considered by his colleagues and by nonpartisan evaluators to be one of the most bipartisan members of the Senate, able to work across the aisle to find common ground and route to passing broad-based legislation. When the founders sat in Philadelphia and considered the Senate, I believe that they were hoping for Bill Cassidy. And we are delighted to have uh, Senator Cassidy here with us today to discuss his chosen passage with the Psalm 51, and specifically Psalm 51.6. So Senator Cassidy, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Hey, thank you very much, Mark. It's a privilege to be with you. So Senator Cassidy, of, of everything in the Torah or what we call the Tanakh, what Christians and Jews call the Old Testament, why Psalm 51? So please tell us, how is this so meaningful to you, and, and what is it about? Well, first, I, I stumbled upon it, if you will. I, I've read it, but it, it had particular meaning to me. I use the Book of Common Prayer as my daily devotional device. And in the morning prayer, there's Psalm 51. But if you go to actual Psalm 51, not the excerpt, 51.6 is, For behold, you look for truth deep within me and will make me understand wisdom secretly. Now, why is that important? We read these ethics, we read these encouragements, but we deceive ourselves at times to think that we've actually met them. We have what, what Freud would call superego lacuna, in which we kind of totally ignore the practical teaching of what we read. I call 51.6 a funnel verse. Everything else I'm reading, which I wish to guide my life, funnels through it. And am I actually, Lord, am I actually, look deep within me, teach me wisdom deep within me, am I fulfilling this verse? It's really hard. There's a proverb in which a man's way is right in his own eyes. We, we kind of look at our mirror and we think we look good, but we really need God to teach within us that which we should be doing. And you can pick so many verses. And then I've got several listed here that would kind of, okay, in my funnel, am I actually living this? It's a challenge. What an interesting way to, to, to look at a verse is a funnel verse. And in Psalm 51, this is, of course, King David, who's confronting his great sin, yeah. which is when he looked across the way, and we, we've been there at Ir David in Jerusalem, he looks across the way and he sees Bathsheba and has her husband sent to the front to be killed so that he can fulfill his lust 
with Bathsheba. And this is his response. And think about how often he deceived himself. Moral kind of clarity did not come to him until after he had effectively had Bathsheba's husband killed. And the prophet comes and confronts him, and then he has wisdom taught deep within him. And he recognizes his sinfulness as he records here in Psalm 51. Now, here's a guy, a man after God's own heart, and he ignored the fact that he broke like four or five of the Ten Commandments in one set of actions. That's right. And, and, and so David doesn't even realize his sin, which is so obvious to anybody reading this. I mean, the sin is almost hyperbolic, and there are so many sins, and he doesn't even realize it until Nathan comes and gives him a parable, at which point he's able to begin his transformation. But it's only when he's educated by without that he's able to change from within. And that is something which is so kind of almost discouraging that someone could miss that. I read the Bible in Spanish to improve my Spanish. It also makes me slow down a little bit. And words which in English become almost rote, in Spanish I struggle, and so therefore it expands the meaning. And in Spanish, the word that we interpret as righteousness in English is interpreted as justice in Spanish. And and that kind of led me into this kind of thought, wait. Here it's justice, there it's righteousness. How do I reconcile that? And that led me to the Hebrew in which righteousness is the active performance of justice. Tzedakah, either tzedek or tzedakah. It means, it means justice, and it's often mistranslated as charity, but we have no concept of charity because charity is something you do out of the kindness of your heart. But for us, uh, tzedakah is just a function of justice or righteousness. You do it because it's just, not because it's kind, it's just just. And the performance to do justice is a component of righteousness. It, it is as you are not righteous unless you do justice. That's right. Now, that gives a sort of kind of fermentation within us in which we should always be looking actively, how do we do justice? A friend of mine who is in a small parish, we call counties, parishes in Louisiana, sent me a picture of a so-called Rosenwald school. Hmm. And Mr. Rosenwald was one of the principals in Sears Roebuck. And in the early 30s, I gather, there was state-sponsored oppression of African-Americans, so-called Jim Crow laws. He paid for schools throughout the South in which African-Americans could receive education. A man of great wealth who didn't just sit on his wealth and his comfort, but rather he saw, as I understand it, to do justice, to do righteousness. And so, and this just came across my, uh, you know, my email, a a friend sending this to me uh, this past week, a good example of how we do justice. And I think of that now, our society is challenged. Are we each individually, as much as possible, attempting to do justice? So it's a funnel verse. I am reading about doing justice. Lord, teach me within my interior, am I doing justice? Actively pursuing it as a mode of righteousness. And so, again, teach me in my innermost being. And it's a beautiful way to to look at it, as you said, as a funnel verse, because as you said, according to that proverb, you can fool lots of people. You can even fool yourself, but you can't fool God. So when you're asking God to come in in 51.6, where it says to, to teach faithfulness, even in the womb, you taught me wisdom in that secret place. It's like in my most secret, in my most vulnerable place, give me wisdom and and be with me in a place where nobody can be fooled. In other words, make that my core, which is why it's the funnel verse. Which there's so many applications because each of us knows uh, Jesus as a rabbi said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But he's quoting Leviticus 7.18. And, and so, 
am I doing unto another? So I wish somebody to treat me generously. Wait, I'm a Republican. You may treat me. You may think that my politics are all wrong. As a Republican, I may think yours are all wrong. But can we actually, with kindness, try and find a motivation that animates both? Now, believe me, in politics, you need a funnel verse. (laughs) Wait a second. If somebody disagrees with me, am I really trying to treat them as generously and understanding their motivation as I would ask them to treat me and understanding my motivation to do justice, to do righteousness, to be fair to all? And so each of us in our own realm has the need to understand wisdom secretly. Absolutely. And, and it's the, the wisdom secretly that's, that's so important because sometimes people make the mistake of saying that God only cares about our actions. And of course, the actions are the most important thing about us. But it also says all throughout the Bible, you shall be wholehearted with God. In many different ways, it uses the term tummy, you shall be wholehearted with God. And God also says, I am holy, you shall be holy. So actions matter, but so does character. It all matters. I'm so totally with you on that because I, I'm struck that we that, that some people's actions, what might be wrong for one would be wrong for the other. What is really important is the attitude uh, that you bring to doing that action. Exactly. As we think of caring for those who are less well off, there's different approaches, obviously. And it's kind of interesting. This will sound against type for both. But, but if you will, Democrats are often about strengthening the safety net. Republicans are about expanding economic opportunity. But there's a heck of a lot of crossover. Jesse Jackson said, hand up, but not a handout. Phil Graham, a famous Republican senator, said, very conservative from Texas, there's some people who will pull the wagon, but some people who must be within the wagon. And so there really is this kind of melody. Same idea. But sometimes we view the motivations of another so harshly, and it may be that's because if we had their motivation, it would be wrong. But if we look at another, we really want all to do better. And for one, it's one pathway. And for it's another by which we achieve this. For Mr. Rosenwald, it was the expansion of educational opportunity, which would then be the stepping stone to a better life, as an example. For Mother Teresa, it was about meeting basic human needs. But if we know our heart secretly, and we know the ma- attitude by which we come to do justice, then hopefully we expect that of others. And we treat the other more generously, whatever their approach might be. I visited um, you in your office in February when I was coming in to meet with you. Coming out were six or eight senators from both parties who were with you in your office in Bible study. Yeah. How often does that happen? What were you studying or what might you've been studying? And when senators get together to study scripture, as you've been doing for at least an hour before I met with you, what would the conversation have been like? So there's two different groups that we meet with. One is more Christian in which we'll be studying the New Testament. And the other is a kind of a devotional time in which there's Christians and Jews who also come and share their faith. Chuck Schumer has shared his experience, Al Franken as, as two Jewish members of the Senate. The one that we would have studied then was probably Philippians. I think at that time, that's what we were doing. And it is a way to, and it's bipartisan, it's a way to encourage one another, not to make a big splash, in fact, I think this might be, you know, uh, one of the things I do that's mo- most overtly spiritual in my, you know, day. I am speaking overtly. But point being, how do we encourage one another in a way, but also make sure that we are each living in a way which is faithful 
to that which we are studying. If there's a funnel verse, there are funnel relationships. Is, is what you're doing really reflecting? One person who attends realizes that, uh, the, that there's too much vulgarity in this person's language. And so no one ever said, hey, listen, we think you're being kind of vulgar, but rather the person came unto themselves. I think I need to you know, clean up my mouth a little bit. And so there's this sort of how can we help one another live truer to the principles which we are studying. Now, when you get together with senators to talk politics or congressmen to talk politics, does this kind of um, continuity of attitude that you spoke about where Phil Graham and Jesse Jackson could be saying effectively the same thing, does that surface? Because from the outside, when one observes politics, it's often just almost uh, all acrimonious, it, it can seem. So conflict on, on cable TV, conflict sells, right? Right. And, and, and I can promise you, there are people who wake up every morning saying, great, we're going to have conflict today. And sometimes conflict is necessary. But I will say that there is oftentimes this kind of common ground. I recognize that uh, one of my Democratic colleagues may have a different perspective than mine. They recognize that difference. But we try and bring it together for policy, which we can both agree upon. Chris Murphy is a progressive senator from Connecticut. We worked on the mental health bill of 2016, which got passed into law. I smiled because uh, we were two freshmen. We didn't know we couldn't do it. And we ended up accomplishing it. Now, if you think of the vulnerability of someone who is mentally ill yes. and the consequences for themselves, for their family, and for society, if that mental illness is left unaddressed, then that was a common ground that we could come to. We agreed there are some things that we cannot agree upon, and we took them off the table. But there was so much that we could agree upon that we were able to come up with what one senator called the most significant reform of mental health laws in 30 years. And, and both Chris and I, I think, and would look back upon that as one of our signature accomplishments. As one example, uh, bringing an ethic of what can we do for others, different perspectives, but common ground that can then go forward. Do me- members of Congress who disagree with each other significantly on matters of policy, do they acknowledge that they have this common, I mean, they have this commonality and are thus able to work together? So are there more examples than we see of people working together in the ways that you describe, or is it as rare as the outsider may assume? I cannot speak globally because I don't know other people's hearts, but I will say I work with multiple senators of both parties on things in which it reflects that common ground. Kirsten Cinema is the Democrat senator from Arizona. She and I are working on a way by which we can help parents have assistance when they have a newborn child. That's the most expensive year of a child's life. And if you are just starting off in life or if you're lower income, then it really is a struggle to make it happen. Now, there are different proposals from Democrats and Republicans. And you might imagine this one is more generous and you might imagine this is more perhaps fiscally responsible. And Kirsten and I, we think we have the one that's Goldilocks just right. I cannot judge the motivations of any. I just know this is the one that I'm working on that I think you know, kind of melds these two but I have to respect the ethic of those on both sides. And so there's other examples like that. And the fact that I'm giving you a range of senators shows you that there is that ethic among both parties as we attempt to meet this need of a family with a new dependent in the most expensive year of that child's life. And so if you will, that's another example of how a funnel verse or a funnel action brings us all to a point of common ground. Now it's just a question of getting to that right 
policy that allows everyone's kind of concerns to be addressed. Yes. And I think one of the interesting things about this being the funnel verse that not only you chose to discuss, but that you, you choose to pray every morning is that it talks about how God loves the broken. Yes. In 5117 says, my sacrifice is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, oh God, will not despise. And the, uh, the Talmud says that if someone comes over to your home for dinner, you would never serve them with broken vessels because it would be considered an embarrassment. But God only uses broken vessels. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I've been meditating on the Sermon of the Mount. And again, Jesus, in Christian theology, Jesus was the ultimate rabbi. He took, he distilled uh, the Old Testament and he presented it in a way which renewed its ethic, if you will. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now you can be poor financially and be haughty in spirit, or you can be wealthy financially and be poor in spirit. That goes back to the concept we spoke earlier of doing justice. As I've learned from the Hebrew, as you, as you elaborated so well, how do you do, it's an active it's not a passive action. That's right. And so I think Jesus is trying to bring that in along that ethic of which you just described. Now, do I do that? Back to my funnel verse. Am I being poor in spirit or am I being haughty in spirit? Am I attempting to impress others with learnedness or am I really trying to be broken before God, knowing that if I have strength, it becomes it is from that strength which indwells within me and then flows out of me. Right. And, and, and your point about do justice being an action verb is, is so important, at least in the Jewish imagination, the Christian imagination too. It's the same thing as love. Like, you know, you can't love your wife unless you do acts of love all the time with consistency and constancy. And it's the same thing with do justice. There's no notion of, that's why it says all the time in the Bible, and God remembered, and God knew, and God remembered Noah. He never forgot. Oh yeah, that guy on the boat for 40 days, you know, for 40 days. No, he, didn't, he doesn't forget. It's just that when he remembers, he's about to act. So doing is always acting. Yes. And again, 51.6, I have a sense of God going through the furniture within my life, looking under the cushions and, and not condemning me, but just saying, hey, listen, you may want to clean out right here. Similarly, in my actions, there should be, in my own mind, my own understanding, there should almost be a restlessness. Am I actually pursuing justice? Am I actually looking for that individual action? Mother Teresa spoke of, I won't get it quite right, but she spoke along the lines of, do the simple thing for the person who is before you. It is easy to get lost in that which might happen on a global level, but if the person before you needs help, I smile on the doctor, Mark. I remember one of my professors who was world famous for his knowledge, and we were around him one day, and a patient woke up, and he goes, I got to, and fill in the blank, but what he meant was to defecate. And instead of being offended, my professor handed his notebook to a medical student, picked up the bed plan with his bare hands, because he knew the guy had to go right then, said, pick up your hips. And the guy picked up his hips, and he slipped it under, and he stood back holding his hands because he knew they were dirty, and he said, let her rip. <laughs> so we can do that small individual action even if our hands get dirty in the service of another, and that can have great meaning. Absolutely. And, and, and I, I love the word you used when you said restless. I mean, that's, uh, that I think is the real religious spirit. It's, you know, uh, President Shimon Peres of, of Israel, he was asked, what was the greatest Jewish contribution to humanity? And of all the Israeli innovations and, and the Bible, everything to choose from, he said dissatisfaction. 
And that, that that's the being restless is exactly what you said. It's And I, I love the image that you portray of God picking up the covers and the pillows to trying to see what's there. And, and the key is that in order for God to be there, we have to let him in. And that's exactly what you do when you pray this verse and live it in your life. And sometimes we think of people looking under our pillows and we have a sense of shame. What will they find? It is more a great sense of enveloped in love. What can I do to bring you to the next level? There's a scripture we go from glory to greater glory. Hmm. God wishes us to revel in the glory we have now, at least in my understanding, but he wishes us to, to go to the next level. It isn't the goal, so to speak. It is the process. And you're enveloped in love. You're always accepted. But on the other hand, is there something I can do to be better? Can I love my wife better? Absolutely. Can I perhaps be a little bit more reconciled? How would you say it? Reconciling with someone with whom I am currently estranged? Hmm. Absolutely. And by the way, as I come through that, I go to greater glory. Not for the sake of my own glory, but for the sake of my relationship with God. Beautiful. So let's uh, turn from uh, one text, the great text of uh, Psalm 51.6, to uh, a very different text. This is always the last question. And the second text is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he, he says in the book that um, he said, I, I just ran into a man with whom I had served in the war. And he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to him, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, I've learned two things. One, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So, uh, Senator, in all your years of serving in uh, the Louisiana State House, in the United States Congress, and now the United States Senate, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? Well, it's really interesting. I'll first go back to being a gastroenterologist. And as a gastroenterologist, when you do a colonoscopy, you recognize that we all look the same underneath our skin. Hmm. And, and so if you can pursue that with me, and again, I hope, <laughs> I hope that doesn't seem too cheeky or too flippant. No, very interesting. Yeah. But when you go in there and you see we're all, by the way, we may have the same pathology. We may have the same, you know, everything's right. But the fact is that if you actually can peer within somebody, looking beyond the superficial, which is different, you will find someone such as yourself beyond anatomy and physiology with the same concerns, the same worries, the same hopes, the same aspirations. It is just a question of whether we can peer beneath that which is, would normally move us to our own tribes. And so I think that is true of all. Now, there's obviously always outliers, but, but if you speak of, of us most, we all have the same hopes, the same desires, the same aspirations. And if we, can, uh, if we can work towards that common understanding, it really moves us much forward. Very interesting. So in your practice as a, a doctor, how have you uh, uniquely brought your medical experience, your medical expertise to Congress, where you take a very different discipline and put it in Congress? You're, you're, not, you're not a lawyer. You're, you didn't, you're not a career politician. You're a doctor. So what's it like being a doctor serving in Congress? Well, two things. I was a doctor. I worked in a public hospital for the uninsured for over 20 years. And so it's that kind of duality of knowing that there are people who don't have health care and we must provide them with quality health care. But in my working hospital for the uninsured, there are two lessons I learned that the politicians controlled. And because they controlled, we had a broken, a literally a broken front door 
that stayed there for over a year. I mean, when I say broken, I mean like huh. the door was broken. It was like off the hinges. At the hospital? In the hospital. Because they didn't receive their care there. And because they didn't receive their care there, no one ever made it a priority. And at the end of the fiscal year, the second thing, at the end of the fiscal year, I also learned that the budget would run out. Now, it didn't matter. We still had patients. It just mattered that, well, you know, the budget's out and we're not going to cover it till the end. So, you know, bills would be postponed to the next fiscal year. Uh, we would have to cancel some procedures until things are ready to go. And you'd have to husband your supplies. So there's this duality in healthcare that has served me well on public policy. We need to have healthcare for those who don't have. That was my commitment for 20-something years. It still is. In a fiscally responsible way, which means that you don't run out of the resources to do it, and in a way which gives agency to the individual, in which she or he is not subject to the priorities of the politician, but rather has agency by which they can have the care they need, independent, if you will, of someone else controlling their fate. Now, there's three things in there, all from that 20 years, and I try and bring that to public policy. Well, uh, God bless you and God bless your work. And, and thank you for your work in so many ways. And uh, thank you for being a guest on The Rabbi's Husband. Hey, thank you for having me. What a great, what, I love the rainbow behind you. Just kind of a nice sort of a, a wonderful sort of kind of reminder of the hope we have. That's right. That's right. God's covenant. You are the God of the brave. If you leave us a breakthrough in